Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, November 1st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. This week, we're covering a somewhat morbid topic, but one that seems to affect each one of us personally, at least at some point in our lives, and that's cancer. I spoke to veteran science writer George Johnson, who has just published a personal, provocative, and very informative exploration of what science does and doesn't know about medicine's deepest mystery. He's the author of several books, including The Ten Most Beautiful Experiments, and is often published in the New York Times. Let's listen to how he describes cancer cells. I came to think of them almost as uh, these quasi-creatures that are trying to evolve in your body. Um, Because really, what a cancer cell is doing in your body is basically doing what a creature in an ecosystem is doing. Um, it's, it's, It's giving birth to offspring. You know, the cells are dividing and making daughter cells. And, um, you know, along the way... um, there are mutations. Some of these mutations are beneficial to the cancer cell. So those cells that have that mutation will will thrive, um, thrive and become uh, you know more successful than the surrounding cells. And then if they acquire another mutation that improves their survival fitness even further, um, you know they continue to evolve and they become fitter and fitter within the ecosystem of your body, but, um, you know, ultimately they kill the host. So, Indre, I really, you know, listening to this interview and getting a sense of what George Johnson thinks, I really actually, I find myself thinking about cancer in a, in a very different way and much more of a, an evolutionary perspective and also this, you know, sort of ecosystem perspective. And it really is, it really actually helps you understand why we haven't beaten it yet. Yeah, you know, I'm not usually a fan of books that talk about a disease for an extended period of time. You know, I find them hard to read. Uh, But I I knew George Johnson's work, and I always admired him. And so I picked up this book. And I have to say, it completely changed my view of cancer. And and more, more importantly, how we should be thinking about treating it or, you know, whether even the idea of having a cure for cancer is viable anymore. Yeah, no, so I think it's, it's great to be to be asking this question, it sort of some, it comes out of the blue to me because it's not something I'm deep into. But you've you've really gotten me interested. 
Great, great. So that's our interview for today. But first, I want to talk about some of the science and the news this week. And, uh, you know, I hope that you've gotten your flu shot. Have you, are you immunized? I am just recently, yes. I'm probably, probably haven't kicked in yet. Probably not offering any protection yet, but yes. Good. So since we're, you know, we're in the midst of flu season now and we're about to enter the holiday travel times, and of course that's what causes those viruses to spread around. Uh, but do you remember, you know, about 10 years ago there was an epidemic that uh, struck North America and, and in, in particular, but also other parts of the world, called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, uh, or SARS. Oh, do you remember totally. that? I mean, it was scary. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out that we now know what started the virus in the first place. And it's eerily appropriate for the day after Halloween. It turns out that it began in Chinese horseshoe bats. A bat. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, bats are where the coronavirus uh, began. And in particular, they found this this one species in China where they think they, they localized the, the initial... Um, you know, the, the, the initial source of the virus. And it's still unclear how that virus spreads from bats to humans, but that that transmission is possible. Um, so, but, you know, it was a, it was a well, pretty Well, I saw severe... it in a movie. I know how it happens. You know, the bat <laughs> eats a piece of fruit and it falls from its mouth and then a pig eats it and then the human is, you know... <laughs> yeah, it didn't well... seem very... Well, that was contagion, right? But <laughs> right. I, I'm not sure how it actually happens. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, or, or, you know, how many of them need, is it just enough for one human to have it? Um, or, you know, does it need to be more people um, to begin with? But, but uh, you know, it was a pretty serious uh, outbreak. I think it was something like, you know, almost 775 people dying. Um, but, you know, all, it also spread all around the world, which, which was the scary part, I think, for most of us. And I, I've just read that there's a, there's another one, maybe not as bad. It's called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, another coronavirus, also from a bat. It's, uh, and it's, it's funny, I hadn't heard about this otherwise, except by looking into this story. It's infected 145 people, killed 62 in eight countries, mostly in the Middle East. Uh, w- one thing I guess I would ask you, Andre, is it, I mean, is it good news? Do we feel good that we've figured out where these things are coming from, or is this just the beginning of the battle? You know, I think always what, what this information provides us is at least some idea of the source. And if we can find the source, then maybe we can find a better way to combat the virus um, and in and, and that way, you know, create a vaccine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's not immediately obvious to me how knowing that it comes from bats is going to stop us from getting future coronaviruses. Got it. We'll get your flu shot, although I don't think that it'll help with the coronavirus. So as you've noted, a lot of people are going to be listening to this show uh, on Halloween weekend. Uh, Halloween's already passed, but the weekend to party (laughs) is still to come. And so we don't know exactly what our guests will dress up like. I mean, some of them will be... I don't know. They, maybe they'll be the tea party. (laughs) Maybe they'll be the Smurfs. I don't know what they're going to be. But they're going to be going to parties, and some proportion of them, we can't put a number on it, are going to undergo chemical alteration at these parties, um, probably legal chemical alteration. It would probably be alcohol. And this means that they need our help because uh, they need our help for the day after. They need our help with the hangover. And so, Indre, tell us about what this thing is and what people can do about it. 
Yeah. So, you know, hangovers are, of course, the bane of the existence of the party goer. Um, and there's so many folk wisdom and, and old wives tales and what can cure a hangover. But back in April at the 245th National Meeting of the American Chemical Society, uh, which turns out to be the largest scientific society. I didn't know that. Wow. Um, yeah, a, a, a chemist named Allison Mitchell said there are some foods that actually do help people recover from drinking too much alcohol the night before. And one in particular that she studied is called yakamine or yakmine, yakamen. Um, it's apparently a beef and soy sauce-based broth uh, that has some kind of carbohydrate in it, usually noodles, then some protein from like beef, chicken, or, or shrimp and onions. I mean, it sounds like, you know, ramen. And apparently the soup is often sold in New Orleans during festivals and, you know, being touted as a hangover cure. And it turns out that apparently it actually does help people recover, that there's some evidence um, that that it, it actually affects the body's ability to um, regenerate after a hangover. So, so what is a hangover? A hangover, essentially, what Mitchell calls it, is a metabolic storm. Um, she, you know, suggests that of course they result from too much ethanol in the blood and uh, the accompanying dehydration. So that's one of the biggest issues: is that alcohol dehydrates you, and so. Because if you drink too much too fast, your body isn't able to break down the al alcohol, and so it, it can be essentially toxic to your body. So in order to avoid uh, the sort of, you know, the, the, the consequences of a hangover, she says that you can eat eggs, uh, which contain cysteine, which helps remove um, the sort of components of, of uh, alcohol from the body. But also that the broth that uh, Yakamen contains uh, replaces sodium, potassium, and other salts uh, that we lose in urine because the alcohol is di a diuretic. It makes us pee. Um, this is why sports drinks are often touted as hangover cues as well. Well, what about good old-fashioned water? I mean, and... I guess I have one other thing about this. I'm from New Orleans. I've never heard of this Yakamin. So, oh, really? I mean, and I, I, I guess I'll confess that I've maybe um, had a hangover in New Orleans. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just shocked that there's some piece of New Orleans lore, apparently, that uh, this is one of those odd things where people who don't live there seem to know it better than I do. Wow, I just figured that was something that you guys all did. No. You know, Drank your Yakuman. <laughs> no, never. No, never. But but this this is helpful. Um, yeah. So for she all of so our she partiers. yeah. So she continues on with some more advice. She says take vitamin B one, um, which can help prevent the buildup of something called glutarate, which is a substance that seems to be responsible for the headache part of your hangover. Uh, so that seems like good advice. Um, and then you know, of course, the best advice that she presents, which is one I'm sure most of us don't really want to take, which is that to prevent a hangover, abstain from alcohol. Um, or if you must drink, then you want to be able to drink it slowly. So she says about one half ounce of pure alcohol per hour. So no more than, you know, a 12 ounce beer or a five ounce glass of wine or, you know, um, one ounce of spirits every hour. Don't drink coffee, which is also a diuretic and can worsen the dehydration caused by alcohol. And then she also, of course, suggests that eating fatty foods before drinking can help slow down the absorption of alcohol and give your liver a chance to actually metabolize it. Or you can just ignore all this, but you can feel smart the morning after when the headache comes and you wake up and you, you scream, oh, I hate that glutarate. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, At least you'll have, learned, you'll have learned something. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for that. I mean, that is, you know, new, you know, science that you can use. Yeah, just trying to protect our listeners. So now um, let's take a short break and we'll be back with our interview with George Johnson, who's the author of The Cancer Chronicles, Unlocking Medicine's Deepest Mystery. George Johnson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's a delight to have you on our show, although the topic that we're going to be talking about is a little bit morbid. So what, what drew you to write about cancer? Yeah, I mean, morbid and fascinating. That's something that just struck me again and again in the three years I was working on the book. I would become alternately fascinated with cancer just as, I mean, it's really a fascinating intellectual subject, which sounds very weird to say because it's such a horrible thing with such devastating consequences, but I'd find myself pulled between those two poles. And I originally started writing the book, or actually thinking about the book, about a decade ago when my wife at the time, we're no longer longer married, was diagnosed with a stage four metastatic cancer. And like so many of these things, completely out of the blue. Um, showing up as a swollen lymph node, and um, it was biopsied and turned out to uh, be swollen with carcinoma cells, cancer cells, uh, with no uh, clue for weeks as to where the cancer had originated. So it was what they call a a um, carcinoma with an unknown primary, which is you know probably one of the scariest diagnoses you can receive. Yeah. And one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is following the cancer, both, you know, in your in your ex-wife and also in other people as a chronicle. So it was it was a story of cancer as a thing that sort of evolves and changes over time, but also of the people who are suffering from it. Well, yes, I wanted I knew early on 10 years ago. And actually, it's wonderfully it's wonderful to say that it's been 10 years ago. It's actually 10 years ago this month that she was diagnosed, and the fact that she's not only alive, but very healthy and doing well is just, uh, uh, if I believed in miracles, I'd say it was miraculous, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing for whatever reason to uh, survive a stage four metastatic cancer, which had a very, very low survival rate. But I had the idea back then when I was reading everything I could, we both were reading everything we could about cancer and the science of cancer and becoming becoming fascinated by it, uh, I knew at the time, or I had the inkling of an idea to write a book, that I would use her story, but not in the forefront, but kind of hovering in the background, or a narrative backbone is how I think of it, that would hold together an exploration of the, uh, the width and breadth and depth of the world of cancer. I mean, really what I wanted to do is come out of this as an outsider to the subject, but as, you know, someone with like a science writer for a long time, I wanted to come out with a book that would give readers and give myself a really good picture in their heads of what we know and don't know about the science of cancer. Right. And one of the things that I kept, I kept worrying that the next chapter was going to, you know, be a a very tragic end to that story. So I, I am delighted to hear that she's doing very well. Um, but I also found it fascinating that intertwined into this, there was also sort of a, a, a history of cancer in the sense that you started looking all the way back into the fossil record to whether cancer has always been a part of, um, you know, 
this planet, or whether it's something that is much more modern, as we think about, you know, the industrialized world changing um, our environment. So tell me a little bit about what you found in the fossil record. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there are just so many surprises to me in writing this book. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, most of us, uh, us being the educated general public, uh, really think of cancer as a modern phenomenon or something that at least has been greatly amplified by the travails of modern life. And it's just sort of assumed without thinking too much about it. And early on in my research, I ran across this paper about a Jurassic Age dinosaur. They found a fossil, a uh, a chunk of petrified dinosaur bone that was um, diagnosed with metastatic bone cancer. And there were actually people who were experts on dinosaur pathology. And um, looking at this and studying the patterns and comparing them with the patterns of um, modern metastatic bone cancer, they concluded that that's very likely what it was. And I thought, this would be a great way to begin the book. I mean, for one thing, no one's going to expect a book about cancer to begin with a dinosaur. And it would be a way to immediately explode a lot of people's preconceptions and to get them to think that, um, you know, maybe they're going to learn some other surprises in the course course of the um, story. And one of the surprises that I found most fascinating, too, is how you described that, you know, there it, it wasn't just this isolated case of a dinosaur bone having cancer. There are several examples of cancer in the fossil record. And though they're rare, um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about sort of the prevalence of cancer in the fossil record and whether that's something that we would expect give it, if, if cancer was at the same rate that it is today or if it, if it really was rarer. That is the hard thing to determine. Like how much cancer was there in ancient and prehistoric times compared with today? I mean, certainly there's more cancer today because there's more people. And there's more cancer today because more people live to an older age. And something like 75% of all cancers diagnosed in people 55 years or older. So the fact that we've been so successful in, um, in essentially wiping out so many uh, infectious diseases, you know, very few people now die of uh, cholera epidemics or the, of the Black Death. Um, and fewer and fewer people in developed countries die of um, heart disease, or they die of heart disease at a much later date than they used to. So people have the luxury with modern civilization of living long enough to essentially get cancer, which is, you know, a strange way to put it, but cancer is essentially a disease that occurs because of an accumulation of genetic mutations that often takes decades and decades, and the more likely you are the longer you live, the more likely you are to get cancer. So keeping all that in mind, you have to adjust for the age figures. You have to adjust for the fact that cigarette smoking caused an enormous spike in lung cancer starting in the early 20th century. But when you subtract that all out, you know, and you adjust for the demographic aging of the population, was there more cancer now than there was in the past? And... Um, the problem is you don't really have the um, the demographics, you know, beyond about 1850 that you can really rely on. You don't have the uh, 
the census data and you don't have you know reliable medical records certainly not for whole countries so the only thing you can really do is look at the fossil record and in the human fossil record over the course of all the time that archaeologists and uh, paleontologists and uh, anthropologists have been looking at human and non-human fossils, they found only isolated incidents of cancer. I mean, they found a total of about 200 cases in the human fossil records. So you have to wonder, is that a little or is that a lot? And uh, at first it sounded like an awfully small amount to me, but then when I thought how unlikely it is that you're going to find cancer in an old human skeleton, it started to seem like that was probably just the tip, the tiny tip of a very large iceberg. Because surely the cancer would have to be in the bone, and of course there's so many other places that cancer develops. Yeah, so for one thing, it would have to be cancer that developed in the bone, which very little cancer actually starts in the bone. Most bone cancer is metastatic in the sense that it developed elsewhere in the body, in the soft tissues, and then metastasized to the, to the skeleton. So you're only going to see cancer that is metastasized to the skeleton from elsewhere since the rest of the body has disintegrated. And um, there's an interesting study where a scientist looked up the statistics according to modern statistics, which is all we have, is how often certain kinds of cancer um, are likely to metastasize to the skeleton. And using that information, he looked at census records in England and Wales, which were the best that we have for the 19th century, and um, did some calculations, which he um, you know, re readily concedes are very, very rough and involved a lot of assumptions. But uh, he came away after studying 19th century remains with the feeling that there was no sign uh, adjusting for the aging of the population. There was no sign that there was less cancer then than there is in the 20th century. And then later, some scientists in Germany uh, did a study on Egyptian skeletons uh, you know, from some of the uh, early, early Egyptian dynasties and came up with the same numbers. They found what they would expect to find if the cancer rate uh, back then, uh, adjusted again for the aging of the population, was roughly the same as it is today. So their conclusion was that probably there was as much cancer then as there was was in modern times. So that's really amazing, given how different our you know urban environment is from what you know the ancient uh, our ancestors lived in. I mean, and and so many so many people I think really have this idea in their minds that. Cancer is primarily, you know, an environmental disease, that there are a lot of ways in which you can get cancer from carcinogens that you um, are exposed to. Well, that's another big surprise for me in the book. I would have thought that, too. But uh, um, uh, you know the story, of course, and I'm sure you, all your listeners do, of uh, Love Canal, the horrible toxic waste dump in upstate New York. It was the, the first Superfund area. Um, and basically, a neighborhood, including an elementary school, was built on the top of a, a chemical waste dump that had been forgotten about. And then the waste started seeping upward, and it was discovered in an emergency declared. People evacuated. Um, 30 years later, they went back and did a very detailed epidemiological study on everyone they could find who had lived there and grown up there. They found that the overall cancer rate was no different than for the general population. 
it reminded me of um, of how you talk about also cancer clusters that, you know, when you hear of someone who's been diagnosed. So, for example, in, in my field as a musician, it seems to me as though there are a lot of women who are getting diagnosed with breast cancer who are singers or involved in classical music. But I'm sure there's no nothing that classical music does that causes breast cancer. Um, you know, I think it's just that our, as you know, our minds are, are geared to find connections. And when you have someone close to you who has cancer, you tend to hear about or remember other people who have had the same cancer. Yes, I mean, the wonderful thing about the human brain is, is that it's a pattern matching device. And we you know, see little bits of data and we look for patterns to explain them. But, uh, you know, this is basically, you know, the source of our intelligence and the great success of science and civilization, but at the same time, we're cursed with not knowing the difference between um, the patterns we see and the patterns we just think we see, the ones we imagine and the ones that are really there. And that's led to a lot of people thinking that they live amidst a cancer cluster. And, and the statistics really have shown all the investigations over the last century in the United States have uncovered exactly two of what are considered by epidemiologists to be verified residential cancer clusters, a case where people living in a neighborhood uh, were exposed to some kind of um, carcinogenic chemical from you know, an industrial setting or a waste dump, and that this had led to cancer. And uh, one case was in uh, Tom's River, New Jersey, and the other case was in Woburn, Massachusetts, which was the subject of that um, great book by Jonathan Haar, Civil Action. But those are only two, the, two, the only two cases, and they only involved, I mean, I shouldn't say only because any case is tragic, but they involved, you know, approximately 12, 15 children in each case who might, if you read the statistics a certain way, have gotten leukemia that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. But even that's very controversial. I mean, both of the cases were settled out of court because, you know, there just wasn't strong enough evidence to really confidently, confidently pursue a resolution. So that's really, I was just flabbergasted to learn that the general view of epidemiologists is that approximately, oh, maybe three to 5% of all cancers um, a risk factor was um, chemical carcinogens or food additives or any synthetic chemicals. But, you know, what you say is true that, you know, environment is involved in a large number of cancers, but the way epidemiologists describe environment, that includes, of course, sunlight, you know, which is um, a major risk factor for carcinoma, which is one of the cancers that is on the rise. And the environment also includes human behavior. So um, a decision by a woman, for example, not to have children or to have children later in life or to have fewer children, I mean, that results in, in a female body being exposed to more monthly menstrual cycles, which is more, um, more uh, doses of estrogen every month. And uh, estrogen's purpose is to cause cells to start growing more rapidly in the breast, for example, to prepare for birth. And this happens every month, you know, over and over again. And every time you have cells growing more rapidly, dividing more rapidly, that means, they're more likely to um, pick up some kind of um, 
uh, some damage, some mutation. So you have these cells that are dividing at a much faster rate than normal, stimulated by estrogen. So just for random reasons, there's going to be copying errors and more mutations will, will occur. So um, uh, delayed childbearing has uh, been linked to an increased number of breast cancers, and it's believed to be one of the reasons why there's more breast cancer in the developed world than in the developing countries where women don't have that choice and just, you know, basically must be pregnant all the time. And yet in some cases, like, for example, the link between cigarette smoking and and lung cancer is is very strong. And yet, you know, you also talk about how everybody's got an uncle who smoked a pack a day for his entire life and never got cancer. And, you know, that that's that's actually the norm. That's that's that that getting lung cancer, even if you're a smoker. Yeah, even even lung cancer. I mean, we should say that smoking cigarettes, you know, being a, you know daily smoking cigarettes, being like a heavy or moderate cigarette smoker, raises your lifetime chances of getting lung cancer by something like a factor of two thousand. But it raises it from a tiny, tiny percentage, far less than one, to about eight percent. So um, there's an eight percent lifetime chance that somebody who smokes a a pack or two a day of cigarettes will get lung cancer. And, you know, when you look at, but of course, on the other hand, there's also other cancers that are associated with smoking. And also, more seriously, there's hypertension and heart disease and, and um, all, you know, many things that can kill you. So no question that, you know, chain smoking cigarettes or even just um, moderate cigarette smoking takes years off people's lives. But, I mean, I would have thought that it raised your cancer chances to maybe more than 50% or 75%. And to see that it was 8%, again, puts this into statistics. So, you know, when you're really looking for what causes cancer in general, not just lung cancer, you really have to look, you know, to sources beyond what we just kind of assumed, you know, were were the culprits. You have to look way beyond synthetic chemicals and look, um, you know, just broader at, at, at human behavior and habits and lifestyles. And uh, of course, diet is another another whole issue here. Yeah, I wanted to talk about diet, actually, about how, you know, you know, there are some there's some connection with cancer and red meat, but there isn't a lot of evidence that eating a lot of fruits and vegetables is going to decrease your risk of getting cancer. Yeah, that was a huge surprise. You know, one of the chapters in my book, the second chapter, where I'm introducing uh, the case of Nancy, my former wife was um, very, you know, I mean, she is and and was a very uh, conscientious person about, you know, healthy eating and exercise. And the chapter begins with the sentence, she always ate her vegetables. And I use that to really get into a chapter of describing all of the things that we heard that everyone hears that you were supposed to do that were supposed to help you ward off cancer or significantly reduce your risk. And of course, one of them was, you know, eating the, um, you know, the five, uh, five a day uh, combination of fruits and vegetables and grains and things. And, and there were studies that came out, you know, around 1990 and a little after a big epidemiological study that seemed to indicate that there was a huge, significant uh, beneficial effect from that kind of diet. And, and in my book, I quote a column that Jane Brody wrote in the New York Times in which she was 
describing the conclusion of this, what was considered at the time to be the definitive study. And it sounded like, you know, this was, was really solid science. And um, then 10 years later, they went back and looked again when they had more numbers. You know, the epidemiology had been going on longer. They had better epidemiological studies. And basically, the effect they found before evaporated. And they concluded that it's possible that a steady diet of fruits and vegetables might have a slight effect on, you know, reducing somewhat your chance of getting certain cancers. I mean, it was just qualified to death. So, I mean, it's good to eat fruits and vegetables, but, you, you know, you shouldn't um, expect that that's going to have much to do with cancer prevention. Right. Not just for cancer prevention. Um, and then I always was, I was also surprised at how apparently height is a risk factor for <laughs> <Yeah>. cancer. <laughs> See, this is the thing that, I mean, again, it has to do with the sense that, I mean, you, know, you really have to think about what cancer is. I mean, a cell has to, has to accumulate, you know, somewhere, the number that's usually used is on the order of half a dozen different mutations. And these mutations happen randomly in the sense that whenever a cell divides, it's going to have uh, mistakes because whenever a cell divides, it has to copy all of its DNA and make uh, you know, two perfect copies for the daughter cells, and then they divide, and they have to copy it again. So you have this exponential doubling and doubling down the line. Every time you do this division and copy the DNA, you know, just there's always going to be errors. You know, we live in a world governed by entropy. You know, things tend to fall apart. There's always going to be mistakes. Now, most of these mistakes are either harmless or they kill the cell outright and then it's gone and, and another cell replaces it. Or our DNA proofreading mechanisms and all these amazing things that have evolved over the eons catch the errors and actually repair them or they are they detected a cell has so many errors and it's starting to behave in such a wild manner that they can basically cause the cell to kill itself what they call apoptosis or programmed cellular suicide and then again the cells offline but if you get a certain combination of mutations it knocks out all of the various defenses it feels growth in the cell and this is going to happen, it's much more likely this is going to happen if cells are dividing more rapidly than normal, which is why estrogen has carcinogenic effects. And it's why uh, height is probably a, a cofactor for cancer because you know, people who are taller had more cellular divisions to produce you know, the taller body and therefore more chance to accumulate these mutations along the way. I mean, who would have ever thought that height would be associated with somewhat increased risk of cancer? And of course, this is not something like you can do anything about. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, certainly not me who stands at 5'9". <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just built into it. And, you know, and obesity is, um, um, for, for similar and more complex reasons, is also, is also, um, uh, associated with cancer. I mean, all this involves hormones, too. So taller people will have probably had um, a bigger dose, bigger doses of growth-stimulating hormones. And again, you know, anything that's stimulating growth is going to increase the, the frequency of cellular divisions and increase the chance that you're going to get mutations. Now, some of those mutations 
might be caused by an outside carcinogen, some kind of chemical or a, a, you know, radioactive ray zapping through you, but probably most of them, certainly a huge number of them, you're not going to be able to identify a cause. It's just going to be basically random copying errors. And that's why, I mean, to a certain degree, there's something unfortunately very natural about cancer. It's a natural trade-off of evolution. You know, the fact that we're multicellular creatures made of these many cells that have to work together in complex harmony and that have to divide and copy themselves with fidelity. I mean, four million times in one second. I mean, in one second, four million of your cells. That's the best way to put it. During one second, four million of your cells in your body are undergoing division and copying their DNA. So That's there's amazing. obviously going to be errors. And, but, it, but if this didn't happen, if there weren't errors, we wouldn't be here to be... We wouldn't be here discussing this because we never would have evolved. You know, evolution is based on random variation and selection. So there are random mutations. Some of these um, increase the fitness of, um, of some creatures over other creatures, and therefore they um, reproduce more and get more of their genes into the genetic pool, and um, you become better and better adapted as a species your environment. So if we reined in mutation completely, like if we had perfect proofreading mechanisms repairing repairing ourselves, well, we couldn't. You know, you have to allow a certain amount of errors in order to have evolution. And if you allow a certain number of errors, you're going to risk having cancer. So you just have to, you know, hope that cancer is something that's going to occur later in life than earlier. And, you know, there was one other uh, point that you made that I found really interesting, which is that a lot of us think of tumors as just these clumps of malignant cells, but that, in fact, it's, it's, we should be thinking about them as a system of interlocking parts, like an organ. Yeah, more and more they're being thought of as, as like these, these organs, or I, I came to think of them almost as uh, these quasi-creatures that are trying to evolve in your body. Because um, really, what a cancer cell is doing in your body is basically doing what a creature in an ecosystem is doing. Um, it's 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 giving birth to offspring. You know, the cells are dividing and making daughter cells, and um, you know, along the way, um, there are mutations. Some of these mutations are beneficial to the cancer cell. So those cells that have that mutation will will thrive. Um, thrive and become, uh, you know, more successful than the surrounding cells. And then if they acquire another mutation that improves their survival fitness even further, um, you know, they continue to evolve and they become fitter and fitter within the ecosystem of your body. But, um, you know, ultimately they kill the host. Like as you know, as you were describing in your in, in Nancy's case, the luckily the the cancer hadn't sorted out how to use her bloodstream yet, which happens later in in, in cancer, which which is probably something that saved her in, in a way. Well, it's it's very possible. Yeah, I mean that's one thing cancer cells do when they they get to the point where they basically learn, you know, quote unquote, in a Darwinian sense, they acquire the ability through mutation to initiate angiogenesis, which means that they learn to grow blood vessels 
connecting to the blood supply, and that both nourishes the, the tumor, plus it gives the tumor this avenue to spread uh, you know, little explorer cells to seek out new territories in your body to colonize. And I was, I was a little bit taken aback when you were describing pregnancy as a lot like cancer, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's two little cells that start dividing and taking over organs. And Yeah, and it's actually, you know, Susan Sontag, the, uh, the writer who wrote Illness is Metaphor, had a line in her book, which I, I, I read it after I had basically finished writing my book, and she described cancer at one point as a demonic pregnancy. and and I don't know if she meant it metaphorically, and, and, uh, but it's much more than a metaphor. When they actually look at some of the mechanisms that a cancer cell uses uh, as it becomes malignant and it learns to metastasize. They're the same mechanisms that are used by a developing embryo, except there it's done under you know, what's, be, what ev- what's evolved to be a much more exquisitely controlled and orchestrated process. So the result is just a very, very complex creature that's able then to go on and live and thrive outside the body. In the case of cancer, it's the same mechanisms, but without the exquisite direction. So you get these kind of would-be monsters trying to evolve inside your body. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly made me rethink the whole notion of pregnancy in a new light. But it also made me rethink cancer. And, you know, we think of cancer as primarily a death sentence, as something that is related to our own mortality. And yet it, it occurred to me that in some ways, cancer is an example that every cell has its own will to live, in a sense, and that our, you know, our very desire to survive is in every single one of our cells, as cancer shows. Well, yes, that's, that's a very good way to put it, the, the, uh, the survival imperative. And, you know, it's basically built into life at the deepest level. And again, it's how in a very, you know, in a very sick and frightening way, there's something very natural, you know, sadly natural about the existence of cancer and why when you're speaking of cancer, capital C, as a concept, it's, uh, you know, there's never going to be a cure for that. There's going to be certain types of cancer that we can learn to control more than others. And, um, and for childhood cancers, I think they'll continue to be the great successes that they have. They have been treating and actually curing some childhood cancers. But when it comes to a stage four metastatic cancer that's spreading through other organs of the bodies, I just don't see that there's going to be a, a huge amount of progress. There's going to be incremental progress, but um, you know, it's just not something that you can eliminate altogether. Uh, certainly not if you consider the fact that we live longer and longer all the time because of advances, you know, other medical advances. So do you think the key then is that we should focus on prevention and capturing the, the cancer before it gets to, uh, to be metastasized? Well, yeah, certainly, certainly prevention to whatever extent cancer can be prevented. And, but again, if, if not much cancer is related to chemical carcinogens that makes it a little less obvious how to do that. Although some things are obvious, like you know not using tanning beds and, and uh, getting excessive sunlight exposure. Since there's no question that the, you, you, that uh, the ultra higher frequency ultraviolet rays in, in sunlight are carcinogenic, um, and obesity is just so clearly linked 
with uh, uh, increased cancer risk because of the various hormonal balances that cause, which also includes estrogen imbalances that, uh, you know, it's very clear that anything that uh, people can do to avoid becoming obese and, you know, and exercise is something that, uh, and just basically that whole, you know, kind of, there's like all these intertwined concepts, like uh, not being overweight, exercising more, not smoking, um, all of these things that are kind of associated with a generally healthy lifestyle, I mean, really are healthy and um, and can prevent cancer. So while you can't think of any specific food necessarily as being uh, preventive of cancer, if eating more fruits and vegetables means you eat a lot less uh, meat and fatty stuff and, and especially a lot less sugar and desserts and, and things like that that are, you know, tend to raise your blood sugar and uh, give you blood sugar spikes and, and lead to... Um, diabetes and obesity, all of these things are related to cancer. So that can be prevented. And then when cancer does occur, I mean, with childhood cancer, it's very different because uh, childhood cancers, I mean, they're happening in people, in, you know, in young people who haven't had a chance to do a lot of the wrong things in their life. They probably haven't done anything wrong. Um, they haven't had a chance to accumulate all the mutations it usually takes for cancer to erupt. I mean, that it's typically takes decades for for the mutations to accumulate. So that kind of cancer often, if not always, involves uh, developmental problems, you know, something that went wrong during the development of the fetus. And that seems to be one of the reasons why these have been more curable. And they involve fewer mutations, I think, which makes some, some of the others more curable. But when it comes to older people, I mean, maybe we could make improvements in treating cancers that we can't prevent, and we're not going to be able to prevent most of them, maybe treating them in the sense of learning to maintain them in kind of a quiescent, smoldering state. So, um, you know, maintaining them as a chronic disease for longer and longer. And there has been success with that, uh, adding months and sometimes years to the to the lifespan of somebody who has a stage four cancer, for example. But you know, it's not a cure, and you have to question whether those extra months or years are going to be the quality of life that someone would want. But, um, you know, there, 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 there's room for small victories like that. But, you know, there's not going to be this, like, you know, one day they're going to come up with, you know, the drug like they did for, you know, did with um, polio vaccine or with penicillin or... Yeah, I mean, that completely reframes what people think of the holy grail of, of medicine is to find a cure for cancer. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, I think we, we also need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, what it, what is it worth to live an extra month? Because there's a lot of money involved and, and you know, it's, it's very hard to put a number on, on survival. Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, there's always the, you know, the hope against hope that you'll extend someone's life and uh, during this time they'll find some new treatment which you know it's not impossible that that would happen but there's so many of the treatments that again one of the surprises to me in writing this book and this one was a disappointment you know i heard all about you know targeted cancer therapies where instead of like the usual uh, run-of-the-mill chemotherapy where you basically poison the entire body to the brink of death and then bring it back and hope you've killed more 
cancer cells than, um, than healthy cells, uh, that you have these drugs that actually are targeted, that zoom in, these monoclonal antibodies that latch on to the cancerous cells themselves and defeat them. And um, they've turned out to be, I mean, when you really start reading about them, they're not nearly as, as impressive, certainly not as impressive as I had hoped. I mean, the, 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 the most successful one, which still decades later is kind of the, the so-called poster child of um, targeted therapies is Gleevec. But Gleevec's been around for, for a long time, and uh, Gleevec works against one type of cancer, a, um, a blood cancer called um, chronic myeloid leukemia. And for people who have that, it's been, really has been a wonder drug uh, that most people used to die who had that, um, you know, within years. And now most of them by far survive. But you have to keep taking the drug for the rest of your life because uh, if you stop taking it, the cells will, you know, start, the cancer cells will start flourishing again. And people do, not, not everyone, but some people develop, um, develop a resistance to the drug. The, the cancer learns to, to evade it. Uh, but beyond Gleevec, you know, what has there been? The other one that you hear about a lot is Herceptin for breast cancers, which uh, a certain kind of breast cancer that they call HER2 positive because the cancer cells have an excessive number of um, molecular receptors on the surface that are called HER2 um, receptors, they're, they're growth factor receptors. And the targeted therapies seek those cells out um, and in a sense block the receptors it's in a very complex convoluted way. Um, but the problem is that healthy cells also have HER2 receptors. So you get a certain amount of poisoning so it's not really as cleanly targeted as you would hope, and um, they've lately developed what they call super Herceptin and various souped-up versions where, where the, um, again, these are monoclonal antibodies that seek out the, the, hair to, um, the hair to abundant cells, and some of these now carry a special little cytotoxin, a cellular poison directly to the cell itself and kill it. Um, and those have, have definitely improved, um, according to the, you know, the uh, drug trials, they've increased um, uh, longevity of, you know, from cancer survivability, but mostly by far for primary, early, early stage breast cancer. Again, when it comes to advanced metastatic cancer, even with these advanced targeted therapy, you're talking about adding months or if you're really, really lucky and you're out on the far reach of the bell curve, adding years to someone's life, but then again, it's years of you know being treated, uh, treated with this um, with this drug. So although we don't really have a cure for cancer on the horizon, I want to get back to this idea that that cancer really also underscores the fact that in every cell of our bodies, there is a will to live and that there is a culture amongst cancer survivors or patients, people who have experienced cancer to really talk about hope and survivability and sort of the positive effects that having this devastating disease can have on their lives. Well, yes. I mean, that's something that's, that's really inspiring to see how somebody can be faced with a death sentence like that and to see you know, the good spirit and optimism in, in which they continue to live 
their lives and you know continue to you know to be good with good to other people and to uh, continue to hope and you know and in many cases to live you know far longer than the statistics say they would live um my wife for example according to the um According to the numbers, the five-year survivability rate for her cancer was 10-15%. So, you know, everyone else after five years you, it would be dead. That's one way to look at it. But then you realize you're talking about median survival. And the no, one person is a statistic. So uh, that just means, you know, again, the median, but there's all these people on the way out on the right end of the bell curve um, that live much longer, and she's obviously one of those. At the time, I was really inspired by an essay that Stephen Jay Gould had written when he was diagnosed with a cancer called mesothelioma, and the median age of survival was something like seven or eight years. And as he writes it, he says, God, you know, I mean, my first, you know, he was just thunderstruck and thought, I'm going to be dead in less than a decade. And then he thought about all the reasons why he wouldn't be the median, you know, that he would be uh, out on what he called the long right-hand tail of people who live, you know, longer and longer uh, than, the, than the median number. And in, in fact, he lived for, for decades beyond that. And he did eventually die of cancer, but another one that's believed to be entirely unrelated. Um, I mean, something that really inspired me, it was a very sad thing, because it's just as I was finishing the book, um, I mean, I was really just had maybe a chapter or two to go, and my youngest brother um, was diagnosed with a cancer, and this was a cancer actually with a relatively high survival rate, and yet, and yet he was dead within nine months. But you know, just to to see the spirit and the belief that in you know his doctors and the just the will to live that um, he exhibited during that time was. You know, it, it it didn't it didn't save him, but it was just a wonderful, wonderful example of how, as as you put it, we have this will to live, this will to survive, and um, even when faced with such horrible odds, and sometimes we're going to win and sometimes we're going to lose, and yet, you know, it's a built-in part of life. It is surprising how much we can learn about life from talking about what is almost a synonym for death. Yeah. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you. So, Indre, I, I haven't read this book. You're making me want to. Uh, the interview makes me want to. The idea of just, I mean, just cancers in the fossil record, cancer in dinosaurs, cancer in humans whose bones are preserved in stone. I mean, he's just, he's just blowing my mind compared to what I think of when I think of cancer. Yeah, you know, the benefits of a great writer like George Johnson is that he really pulls you into the story right away. I mean, this, the, the, you know, the book opens with this trip that he's taken, you know, to find this Jurassic cancer. And uh, it just never lets up. It really reads like a page turner. And, you know, throughout the whole book, there is this background story of um, how his wife was was going through her own uh, battle with cancer. And, you know, it's just it's it's peppered with really great information, but it's also just a really wonderful read. So, you know, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're. it also has the effect of just turning you a little philosophical. I mean, this idea that if you actually, I mean, so, so leave aside the awful cancers that afflict people when they're young, but the cancers mostly afflict people when they're old. 
And uh, this idea that, in effect, it's public health and improving uh, our ability to fight off infectious diseases that gets us to the place where we can actually get cancer. So if you're getting one at a, a really serious age, you know, 70 or something like that, I mean, in a sense, you are lucky <laughs> to have gotten to the point. Yeah, I mean, look, no, no cancer is is not awful. I mean, all, yeah. all cancer is awful. Certainly, it seems that what causes cancer in children may be a slightly different mechanism than you know the accumulation of mutations that seems to to um, cause the vast number of carcinomas which which happen as we age. Um, but you know, it also really made me think about um, just cancer in a completely different way as this kind of. This just this, it's a process. It's a, it's a natural process of our bodies that, yes, you know, it, it, it harms us and, and kills us in the end and, and is, is a terrible diagnosis. Um, but it also suggests that every single one of our cells has in some way a will to live. And that is so profound, you know, and, and even though his book is, you know, it's, it covers this morbid, difficult topic. In some ways, paradoxically, I found it, uh, you know, uplifting in a, in a weird way yeah no I, it's and it's just it gives me a a new way to think about it that is really sort of gets me going and wanting to know more whereas before i didn't know quite what to think except for what most people think which is that this is just the worst thing that there is yeah and that you know someday we'll find a cure and that somebody will win a nobel prize for it you know that's just not going to happen we're going to find a way to live with it and try to minimize the damage that it can cause in our lives um, and, and hopefully, you know, eventually it'll just become a chronic condition that we can treat and doesn't affect us much anymore. But uh, we're still a long way from that. No, it's I mean, it it really is the answer to the question that everybody ought to be asking when they think about cancer, which is, OK, how long have we been prosecuting wars on cancer and trying to find a cure to cancer and we're not there. I mean, because I, I'm going to throw out, a what is it, four decades of like really serious science at least, probably a lot more than that, but, you know, modern science. And so what this interview gives you is the answer to why it's been so hard. Yeah. You know, it's it's the holy grail for medicine to find the cure for cancer. And, and uh, you know, it's it's just that's just not going to be the wave of the future. We're going to we're going to see personalized medicine take over. And since cancer is primarily a genetic disease in a way, you know, it's not genetic in the sense that you get it when you're born from your parents, but rather it's through the accumulation of genetic changes that it occurs. You know, it's going to completely change the way we rethink medicine. Okay, well, I think that's it for uh, another episode of Inquiring Minds, and thank you again for joining us. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that's a partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we are your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms... And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.